Welcome to the Shalom Hartman Institute podcast. I'm Alan Abbey. The Hartman Institute is a center of transformative thinking and teaching. We address the major challenges facing the Jewish people and elevate the quality of Jewish life in Israel and around the world. For details on seminars in Israel and North America, go to hartman.org.il. And now, David Hartman, President Emeritus and founder of Shalom Hartman Institute, with the third lecture in his four-part series titled, How Do the Different Interpretations of the Mythic Story of the Exodus Shape Our Vision of Jewish History? What do you do with the Exodus from Egypt? I mean, is that a symptom of God's unique relationship to the Jewish people, his commitment to fulfill his covenant. And in some way, what goes from there? What is very strange if you read the Bible, when I was preparing for this class, I just kept on reading. It's a love affair and not a love affair. God is seducing them to come back and they are playing around, hooring around with other gods. It's interesting, the big sin in the Bible is idolatry. The big sin is not being loyal to the marriage between Israel and God. And that marriage is the covenant, Virastach Lilolam. And Israel moves away, and God moves away. Then God gets lonely, and he decides to bring them back. They come back, and he hopes maybe now the marriage will stick. And it doesn't. It keeps on repeating itself again and again. And you don't, know, you don't understand when you read the Tanakh, what is this fascination that God has with this lonely, stupid people? I mean, what are they? Never, I mean, what are they? I mean, who are we? <laughs> I mean, God gets so excited by what we do and tries so hard to convince us of his love for us and his desire that we return to him. Shuvah elai shuvah elechem. I mean, this is just a strange story. You don't know why each one is fascinated with the other. So the question is, who is the initiator of this whole drama? Is it God or is it this people? Who chooses whom? Does God choose the Jewish people or does the Jewish people choose God? If you read Spinoza, it's from the people to God. Because Spinoza can't imagine a God who acts in history, who acts with freedom, because for him the principle of necessity, of structure, of being, is the fundamental 
organizing framework to understand divinity. Divinity is implicit in everything. And therefore, for Spinoza, he, he left the Jewish people and he left Judaism. And for that, no one wants to give him an aliyah. So he's either Baruch or Benedict. You can choose. If you read the theological political treatise, he's really Benedict. He makes Jesus the carrier of morality and Moses a political statesman. So fundamentally, for Spinoza, Judaism is not a moral religion. It's a political system. And it's interesting because there's something very interesting and strange about being a Jew. Is being a Jew connecting yourself to some very deep spiritual life to God? So it's something holy? Or is Jewish life being part of a mishpacha? The whole notion of a nation with territory and land. I mean, the whole notion of returning to Israel was the motive of the political ordering framework of the Jewish identity. To be a Jew is to be identified with a particular people and a particular history. And that's why every act of conversion has nothing to do only with the fact that you love Torah and you want to live a Jewish life, is also you want to be part of this very strange, mysterious people. And you have to pledge loyalty to this people as a condition for conversion. Now, there's no religion like that. I mean, religion has to deal with the search for God, the looking for something significantly holy in your life. And here you have to like Chaim Shmel and Miriam and Mordechai, and I gotta like them. <laughs> I always said the most difficult thing for me being a Jew is to have to like the Jewish people. I mean, I could get along with God, I could get along with Torah, I could interpret, but how am I gonna make sense of my connection to what appears to be a very strange people. Very strange. And we see this strangeness in the very establishment of the state of Israel. You see then the corrupting, problematic feature of the religion. You have to in some way connect yourself to Bibi and that's a leap of faith far more difficult than the leap into a transcendent God. So in some way, what's going on here? Why does God choose this people? There are two questions from both directions. Why is this people deservant of being elected as a unique people in history. What's, what is there about Jews that God chooses them 
as the mediator of his presence in history, and two, what type of God is there who on one level is the creator of the cosmos and suddenly falls in love with Abraham and his mishpacha and his grandchildren? I mean, it's a very diminishing notion of the Lord of creation. I mean, so both are problematic. Both God is problematic. Why are you choosing the Jews? And the Jews are problematic. Is why are you, why are you so significant? Now there are those who have tried to give explanations to that. Yehuda Levi, the morale that the Jews were endowed with a very specific. I mean, because if you operate with the biblical framework of creation, then you're not going to get stuck with uh, Chaim Shmerel and Miriam. Your frame of reference is the larger cosmos, the larger world. If your frame of reference is creation, when you, when you move into revelation, then you move from a universal God to a very, very particular God. And you don't understand how he abandons the world given the fact that he's the creator of the world. Because choosing Israel is really abandoning the world. Because only you have I known, says the prophet. And because I have known you, I visit you severely. I punish you because you are very special in my eyes. You are very important. All of history depends on how you turn out. I mean, can you picture that? I mean, Rav Kook believed that what's happening here is a mirror of what's happening cosmically in the whole world. The Jewish return to Israel is, has cosmic historical significance. It's not the story just of Jews. It's the story of world history. World history is taking a new dimension now as Israel moves from a Galut community to a state community. So for Yehuda Levi, the Jews were uniquely blessed with unique spiritual powers. Koach Elohi. And because of that Koach Elohi, they are able to attain high levels of spirituality. They can attain great intimacy with God and they are worthy of being made into prophets. This Koach Elohi, which came to us from God's creation, God sort of wanted, I don't know why, but that's again, is he prejudiced? Doesn't he like the world? I mean, he, he is the God of the world. So what, is he going to be in a shtibel? I mean, what? He's going to spend his life in a little shtibel on, 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 you know, the shtibel of the people run off ten times the davening. So what, he chooses a shtibel? When you, I mean, you ever walk on Fifth Avenue, on Park Avenue in New York, when you see the cathedral? Have you visited Rome? I mean, if he wants to choose, he should choose Catholics. They got a little classy act going there. 
I mean, the aesthetics, the power, the glory. So what do we have? Hechel Shlomo. The battles over the Kotel, if women could daven Kedushona. I mean, I, I look at that, I say, God, are you not bored with this world? I mean, can you take this world seriously? Can you take what Jews do seriously? So the whole notion of a chosen people seems to make no sense. What do you mean we're chosen? Why do we deserve this very unique title? What is there about us that in some sense makes us worthy to be a select, unique people in the world? What is there? So one answer you find in the Bible is because we're children of Abraham. And God really fell in love with Abraham. I always say that meaning of being a Jew, God fell in love with Abraham and got stuck with his grandchildren. So um, what, you know, in other words, which of you walk around with the thought that you're a member of the chosen people? Do you think about it ever? It doesn't enter my mind. You're giving a lecture series of it. No, so I, so, I, so I started thinking about it. And I started seeing what's going on there. It seems so strange. Now there are some people so I want to, there's two aspects to this series. One, how do I understand the biblical Talmudic frame of reference? And how do I understand the modern world? I mean, has the notion of chosen people lost all significance? I mean, what are, I mean, the Jews, I walk on Rehov Yafo and says, Ata b'charta, shabachabanu. I mean, will you please open up the prayer book? You say it in your davening, and I'm sure you must wonder. I remember I always have the discussion on Kiddush. Then you come to the difficult part. Kivanu vachato, vautanu kidashto. Then comes the bomb. Mikol ho'amim, mikol ho'amim. I remember in my earlier days, I wanted to say Kiddush in a different way, but my wife was not happy with those changes. So instead of saying mikolo amim, I wanted to introduce betocha amim. That God has chosen us in the midst of the world. Sounded a little better. But then I didn't want to get an aliyah. So every time in the morning I have to get up and say birchata Torah. Ashabachabanu mikolo amim. Venosanlonu et Torah. Bochabanu. He chose us and not the others. I mean, you say this all throughout your prayers. Are you bothered by it? Do you have a question? Do you think about it? Now look, I gave you, the first part is the liturgy. You got it? Open it up, please. Eloheinu v'lehei avoseinu. Chadei sholeinu et achodesh hazeh. 
he really looked at the world and says, you know, I want you. <laughs> and I want to understand what did he see? That he said, I want you. What is there about you that he would want to get stuck with us? That's a very important, you have in your whole liturgy and all the davening, you keep on saying the same thing, Mikolo Amim, Votanuki Dashta. We are the, the centerpiece of the drama. The whole Tanakh is filled with that. All the Nevi'im are that. It's not just a, a few prayers. I mean, Judaism stands on the uniqueness and centrality of Israel as an elect people who God needs to mediate his presence in the world. God needs Israel. So Heschel could write a book, God in Search of Man. Or he would prefer a book, God in Need of Man. What does he need? What is it he wants? And what does he think we can deliver? I mean, he's tried thousand times. The Bible gets boring. It gets boring all the time. The same thing over again. Let's start again and let's start again. <laughs> I mean, get the message, God. And, and where are you, God, in all this? If we are the apple of your eye, if we are the chosen ones and to mediate your plan for the world, what type of plan do you have? In Auschwitz, what type of plan was it? Look at the world. The world looks like a place which is moving in a specific direction and that Israel is playing a central role in that drama? That's what the whole Bible is about. I mean, study Tanakh and see. It's an impossible book to read. If you read it seriously, and you don't chuckle, you know, and just and say it's Torah. Hey, Torah, Torah, I have to make a bracha. What's the bracha? Ashabachabanu mikolo amim. Is that how you see yourself? So for me, the problem is the Bible. Now, you see, you see, they were bothered by this question. Why the Jews? Can I read a Midrash to you? The Lord came from Sinai. When God revealed himself in order to give the Torah to Israel, he did so not from just one direction, but from all four directions. He spoke to them not, not in one language, but in four languages. When God revealed himself to give the Torah to Israel, he revealed, he revealed himself not only to Israel, but to all the nations. Read the Bible and tell me if you get that picture. 
to all the nations. He first went to the children of Esau and asked them, Will you accept the Torah? They replied, What is written in it? He said to them, Thou shalt not murder. They replied that this is the very essence of these people and that their forefathers was a murderer. As is said, but the hands are the hands of Esau, and by the sword shalt thou live. That's how God described Esau. He then went to the Ammonites and to the Moabites and asked them, Will you accept the Torah? They replied, What is written in it? Thou shalt not commit adultery. And these are the ones, two children, who had sex with their father. They replied that adultery is their very essence. He went next to the Ishmaelites and asked them, will you accept the Torah? They replied, what is written in it? Thou shalt not steal. They replied that the theft is the very essence and that, the, and that their forefathers was a thief. And thus it was with every other nation. He asked them all, will you accept the Torah? Yes. And what happened if they would have said yes? <laughs> well, I wouldn't have had a job all my life. All the kings of earth shall give the thanks to the Lord for they have heard the words of thy mouth. One might think that they heard and accepted his offer. Therefore, Scripture states elsewhere, and I will execute vengeance in anger and fury upon the nations, because they hearken not. It was not even enough for them that they didn't hearken to the Torah. They were not even able to observe the seven commandments that the children of Noah had accepted upon themselves. And they cast them off. The Sheva Mitzvah Spirei Noach. Now, I mean, how does this Midrash come? Is there any inkling in the Bible that that's what God was doing? Do you have a feeling that he was going around trying to peddle his Torah and everybody saying, sorry, what's written in it? I don't make my living on that. My father was a crook. My father was an adulterer. My father was a murderer. That's who I am. So I can't live by what your Torah is. And then the climax, and he comes to the Jewish people. And what do they say? They didn't ask him what is written in it. They said, Naseh Nishma. We will do everything even before we hear it. So he says, oh, to you, you want my Torah. I'll give it to you. All the other people, I offered it to them, but they don't want it. So this is how the rabbis were trying to deal with the fact that God is not a prejudiced God. He's not just a God who forgot that he's the God of the world. He's the God of the world. 
He remembered that. He went all around. You see, they were bothered by the election of Israel. If they weren't bothered, they wouldn't have written this Midrash. This Midrash grows from a discomfort with Jewish particularism, with Jewish exclusivism. They were bothered morally by that issue. And you find, I mean, it's interesting. You go, I want to read with you now the Gemara and Oy vey. In other words, Midrash doesn't grow. You know, you wake up in the morning and you make a Midrash. Something is bothering you. You feel uncomfortable about being elected as a Jew by a God who is supposed to be the creator of the world. So you got to make room for a God who cares for a whole world and not just strangely for Jews. So they're struggling. Are you satisfied with what they're saying? Now watch what the Gemara Navarazara does. Okay, you got it? This is a beautiful Gemara. Read. I want to know just a secret. Do you read the pamphlets I give you? I know you do. <laughs> That's why I missed you. Do you read it when you get home? You know, we work very hard to put this together. It's not meant for you just to put away, but to study it. My son asked me, what, what, so, why are you giving them so much material? I said, I'm just trying to Imagine that they want to study. God. The separate hangout? Where's the separate hangout? Where? Right, what else is there? Was it, what's about the section of Micah and Amos? Page what? 36? Where is Amos and Micha? 17 to 19. Okay, we'll follow the rabbi. 17 to 19. Okay. You see verse 7 on page 19. Hello. And I know all the apologetics, all the rabbi's sermons, when they're embarrassed by Jewish particularity, they say, but the Bible doesn't only talk about the Jews. Look what it says. Hello, Kibneg. You see it? Everybody got the place? Please, get the place. You're right in the bottom over here. Okay, Jay Pomerantz, you want to read it, please? You can't. Your buddy? 
Anybody want to read? Have Rachmanes on me. Say it out loud. Tell me, how many sermons did you hear that? Hello, Kibnei Kishuyim Atem Libnei Yisrael. Hello, Et Yisrael, Heleiti Beretz Raim, Uflishtim Mikafto, Faram. And he goes on. So in other words, it's not only the Jews that he took out. He also took out the Bnei Kishuyim, Now, I always say to those apologetics, I mean, I don't know if he took them out of, the, but the Bible doesn't seem to want to talk about it that much. I mean, I don't know who the Bnei Flishtim are. I mean, I don't get a whole picture of a dramatic description or discussion of this exodus. So the prophet says, you know, hello, and then you have another verse in Amos, where everybody is going up to go, to the Lord. Everyone will go up with their God, but we will go with our God to Mount Zion. You have that in Amos? You have it? So what's going on? When all the nations, where are they going? They're going to acknowledge the king, which is whom? The Jews. They're all going up to Zion. Can you imagine a traffic in Jerusalem when everybody is from the whole world is going up to Hartzion. So what are they trying to say? I mean, is it true? That, am I going to compare the exodus from Egypt with what he did with the Plishtim? I mean, the Plishtim is one verse in the Navi. One Pusik. You see, as Mitzrayim follows you in a million chapters in the Bible. There's no analogy between what God does for the Plishtim and what he does for the Jews. I, I find that we're embarrassed by the fact that this book is such a racist book. It deals only with the privileges of the Jews. The law sanctifies the uniqueness of Israel. We have survived by the myth of exclusivity, of the myth of uniqueness. I am superior. I am a member of the chosen people. Yes? I don't get that. You don't get that. Yeah, but did we do the job? Yeah, not superiority. I know, can you read the Bible and tell me that the Jews are not the superior nation in the world? You see, we don't want to be superior. 
We want to be a regular guy, like everybody else. But we're not like everybody else. We are the chosen people. We are the people through whose drama God is acting in the world. Now, do you believe that? Is that essential to our Judaism? Now, the guy who struggled with it in the modern world, you're going to deal with it in two weeks, is Mordechai Kaplan. And Ani Eisen wrote a book on the chosen people. You have it. The chosen people in America. That's, it doesn't fit in with our whole egalitarian sensibility. I'm not better than anybody else. I'm just different. I found so many different ways of talking about what is not true. It's not true. The Bible portrays us as a unique, exclusive, holy people. Mamlechet Kohanim Vigoy Kodosh. Atemtiuli Mamlechet Kohanim Vigoy Kodosh. Now, I find that an interesting thing in Israel that many people don't believe in God, but they believe in Israel as a chosen people. Now, the Jews are a chosen people by whom? Haram has another picture. I'll deal with that next week, two weeks. So when you don't understand this thing, you have to, in some way, construct an imminent uniqueness that anyone who's not sensitive, anyone who's mevayish, is not a Jew. So you build election into characterology, sort of like the character, the essential nature of this people is to be moral. The essential nature of this people is to be kind. We just can't imagine that Jews would do things that we read about in the papers. Yes. What can we say the essential obligation of the Jews instead of saying the essential nature of the Jews is to be kind? I'm just saying what the rabbis did with it. They said that someone who doesn't have the humility and shame and gomel chasadim, you don't think to be a member of the seed of Abraham is to be imbued with certain moral characteristics. How many times did I not hear when I grew up, surpassed for a yid to, to do this? It's not appropriate for a Jew to do this. A Jew doesn't do those things. That's what shocks us when we're living here. All the rape and murder. A Jew doesn't do those things. I want to live in a place where Jews don't do those things. Because the very nature of the Jew is not to do that. The nature of the Jew is to be kind, considerate, humble. And when I don't see those characteristics, I can doubt that he's a member of this people. So what has happened, they've taken election, which is a theological transcendent move, and immanentize it to a, a characterology of what the people are. They made the Jew a chosen person, not by God, but by having certain unique capacities, unique strengths. 
Someone told me a story recently that she was in a hospital and she asked the doctor to please look at her friend. For a second he was walking through and her friend had a certain petza. So he didn't even look at her. Just went into the room and shut the door and didn't feel he had to apologize. Now, Jews don't do that, do they? They ask, how are you? When did you get your first attack? And he speaks with you. But that's not true. So who are the Jews? Who are the chosen ones? Is it an ethnic category? Is it a racist category? When people are trying to find DNA, I got a DNA, which is a Jewish DNA. Wow. Jewish DNA means nothing. That's baloney. Oh, no, I shouldn't say that. It's not baloney. It means a lot to people to feel that their soul is in some way endowed with certain unique capacities. Now, the modern thinker who, who worked this out was a Chadam. And we're going to read a Chana'am in two weeks. When he made the Jewish people the carriers of rationality, the carriers of morality. That's his understanding of who the Jews are. And he wanted Israel to be the place that emanates these principles. So where do we draw the sustenance to call ourselves the chosen people. Now, if you look at the Bible, the Bible makes us chosen only on the condition that we observe the commandments. We don't, we're out. There's no such thing we're chosen just because we're chosen. Because sometimes there is the message, we're chosen because God loves us. He loves us. <laughs> That's nice. I wish he'd leave us alone. I'd feel more comfortable following me every place I go. Come on, stay apart. Because I loved you. And I'm reading a book which says there are 58 pages of God's, of Israel's love for God and God's love for Israel. God wears tefillin. And God's tefillin it's written, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Yachad. In Israel's film, it's written, Shema Yisrael. In God's film, it says, Mi ka'amcho Yisrael. Mi ka'amcho Yisrael. So we've, we've built a God who has film, film which in some way, what is written in it is who can be compared to the Jewish people, and we have to film which says who could who could Jehovah be compared to? Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. We have that in our film. He has. He's worrying about how to praise the Jews, and we were at film praising God. So what did they do? They anthropomorphized, and made God into an intimate father figure 
who adopted us when we were children, who loves us like a father loves his children. A father loves a child is, doesn't mean that the kid is going to turn out well. You don't throw him away because he didn't turn out well. That's Hosea. Hosea says to God, why don't you get rid of them? And he could, didn't understand the elementary feeling. God is a lover. <laughs> He's a very olam. So he says, you want to understand me? Okay, you get married and find this woman. And the woman he found was a whore. And she fornicated with all the men on the street. The whole Knesset would line up with her. Then God meets Hosea and he says to Hosea, why don't you get rid of her? After all, she's fornicating with all the men in the round. She's an adulteress. So Hosea says to God, I can't help it. I love her. <laughs> so God says to Hosea, now you understand. I mean, so God's love is the love of an adulteress. No matter how much we hoo around with other gods, he still has us in his mind. No therapy has held to help them to get rid of and excavate the Jews from inside himself. He's caught. He's stuck. He's absolutely stuck because he fell in love with Abraham. And he can't imagine him coming to Abraham and telling him, I have rejected your children. Can't. He can't face Abraham. He can't face the patriarchs. That's why the Bible begins with the story of the patriarchs. It sets into motion the avot, a family life. And God is connected to this family. And then when it becomes a nation, this family follows them. God remembers who the mishpacha was. This is for the Bible and the rabbis, the notion of the chosen people. And it's a dominant theme and doesn't want to leave the Jews. Their identity is built into that. We are special. And then it gets translated in many different ways. A special mission. We have a special task. We have a special concern for social justice. And it gets humanized. What was initially an intimate love affair between the cosmic God of creation and the small people, the children of Abraham, turns into the carrier of moral justice in the world is the Jew. We are the mediators of God's longing to be in history and to build a world that is just. And he made a covenant with us. And if you look at the text, take one text. When the Lord your God brings you to the land that you are about to enter and possess, and he dislodges many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations much larger than you, 
and the Lord your God delivers them to you and you defeat them, you must doom them to destruction. Grant them no terms and give them no quarter. You shall not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from me to worship other gods. And the Lord's anger will blaze forth against you when he will promptly wipe you out. Instead, this is what you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, smash their pillars, cut down their sacred posts, and consign their images to the fire. For you are a people consecrated to the Lord your God. Of all the peoples on earth, the Lord your God chose you to be his treasured people. That the Lord freed you with a mighty hand and rescued you from the house of bondage, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that only the Lord your God is God, the steadfast God who keeps his covenant faithfully to the thousandth generation of those who love him and keep his commandments, but who instantly requites with destruction those who reject him. Never slow with those who reject him, but requiting them instantly. Therefore observe faithfully the instruction, the laws, and the rules with which I charge you today. In other words... You can count on me when you live a Torah life. That's when you are chosen. Chosenness is a reflection of the way you live. Not necessarily some ethnic quality. It's your loyalty to the covenant. It's your loyalty to the Torah, which in some way creates a chosen people. He chooses you to be the mediators of his Torah, of his laws. When you are loyal to them, the covenant is binding. When you're not, the covenant is broken. So you cease being the chosen people. Chosen people is a task, a task to be true to the covenant. If you're not true to the covenant, there's no covenant. There's no chosenness. It's, so, I mean, you see, even here the motive is Abraham. He's stuck with Abraham. And he won't abandon his children or grandchildren. So chosenness is not an ethnic quality. Chosenness is a description of the way a community lives by the Torah. It is their way of life that defines them as chosen. But you're presenting it, it's a little bit of a whitewash because you're, present, you're presenting it as if, you with me? You're presenting it as if, while, if you keep the covenant, you're chosen, if not, no. It is only the Jewish people that have engaged in that agreement, that have that responsibility. In other words, that in itself presumes a uniqueness. The fact that you don't keep the covenant and that there are consequences already makes you a unique people. So it is not simply those who keep the covenant have the chosenness. Those who keep the covenant can rely on God's compassionate love and protection. Those who don't keep the covenant are thrown to the winds. Read the text that I gave you. See how they're referred to. 
Cursed be you, Aruatawo. You get trembling as to what's going to happen to you when you break your covenant, when you break that relationship. It's not like a love affair where the guy never shows up and he insults his girl and she insults him, but they're in love. <laughs> yes, in but, love. The, but the same Bible is that the Jewish people, even when not keeping the covenant, will always be brought back, will always have a place, etc., etc. So there, it's not simply, I'm trying to get away from it being that we are not really special according to the text. According to the Bible in general, like you, we, we, do, we do gain a special place even when breaking the covenant. Okay, so. that's an interesting argument with me. I beg you to read the biblical texts and tell me if you can still come up with that explanation. Okay, look at page Rabbi Zila. Lady Yehuda Yisachar, Joseph and Benjamin, and the curse, and for the curse the following shall stand on Mount Ebal, Ruvain, God, Asher, Zvulun, Dan, Naphtali. The Levite shall then proclaim in a loud voice to all the people of Israel, Cursed be anyone who makes a sculpture or molten image abhorred by the Lord, a craftsman's handiwork, and sets it up, up in secret, and all the people shall respond, Amen. Contextual. Contextual. It's in context. Go ahead. Go ahead, read. All right, but it's in context of a certain time. It what do you mean in context of a certain time? Look what it says. Okay. Cursed be he who insults his father, or mother, and all the people shall say amen. Cursed be he who moves his fellow countrymen's landmark, and all the people shall say amen. Cursed be he who manifests a blind person on his way. Misdirects a blind person. In all right, that's a moral Cursed people. be he who submerges the rights of the stranger, the fatherless and the widow, and all the people shall say amen. Cursed be he who lives with any beast, and all the people shall say amen. Cursed be he who lies with his sister, whether daughter of his father or of his mother, and all the people shall say amen. Cursed be he who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say amen. Cursed be he who strikes down his fellow countrymen in secret, and the people shall say amen. Cursed be he who accepts a bribe in the case of the murder of an innocent person, and all the people shall say amen. Cursed be he who will not uphold the terms of this teaching and observe them, and all the people shall say amen. That's the Arusha Lo Yakim. Yeah, now, I mean, you see, I mean, this is what we would call the the implications of the covenant. It has implications on the way you live. And therefore, Jay, when they say, cursed be he, it's not a, an invitation to come back. There's also that motive. No matter how far you're away, the doors of repentance are still open. In other words, God does not want to punish. There's a beautiful Midrash that says, God says to the people, please bless me and pray for me. 
Pray that I will move from justice to mercy. Pray that I will move from Kisedin to Rachamim so that I can deal with the people in compassion. Now God is in some way begging humanity to in some way free him from judgment and allow him to love. And that's there also. It's all there. And what I want you to do is go over this, read it carefully. Shut the television and read this carefully. Yes. I had a teacher many years ago who came from a long line of rabbis. His name was Shkop, if you know the name of Shkop, in Toronto. And he said that he reversed it. It's that we don't leave God in spite of everything that has happened to us because we love him. And that's why it says v'ahavta because v'ahavta is almost uh, emotion and not a rational point of view. You love somebody and it, it, it not sometimes not rational. And that is our relationship with God regardless of what his relationship may be to us and regardless of what the Bible may have written 3,000 years, years ago or 2,000 years ago, whichever way you, uh, you take it. And uh, so I just... So that we could love him even though he doesn't love us. Obviously, that is happening because if you just mentioned the Holocaust and things like that and what's happened to Jewish history over the 2,000 years, there is not too much of a sign uh, of God's of love affair with Israel. Right. Okay, that's a hard point. I mean, does history make you believe in Israel as a chosen people? Does history corroborate our unique, our unique status in history? And Jay says, there is a unique status, because no matter what we do, we're welcome back. I don't think that's the dominant motive. You have and many times the divine rage for the failure to live by his covenant the divine rage. He can't control it. He needs you to hold him back. So chosenness is not like a pleasant, you know, Beethoven's fugue. Uh, I, yes? Let me say it more clearly, and then if it's not answerable easily, let's move on and not. The Jews are the only people that this deal exists for. And that is the uniqueness and chosenness. In other words, we are in the game that we have reward and punishment for observing and not observing. That's still a unique position versus the individual or the group of people who don't even get into the game. And that is a level of uniqueness and specialness that I think is a motif throughout the Bible. Again, Jay. I thought it was pretty clear. Okay. <laughs> the Jews are, even though we are punished for breaking the covenant, 
and rewarded for keeping it, only we have been chosen to play that game, to engage in that relationship with God. That is unique and special and the chosenness and the motif throughout the Bible. That's still, I think, a superior position to the peoples that don't even get to engage at that level. I accept that. This is Rabbi Zila who studies with us. And then you have spoken on many uh, occasions of the unique situation in history that we've been given, that oftentimes we decry by our inability to necessarily live well by it, but yet statehood, because you've alluded to it with Rav Cook, you'll, I won't be here when you uh, speak of Achar uh, Am's role in this, but the idea of a spiritual center or, or a cultural center has then given us a new tableau upon which we can build and test all of these prerequisites or all of these moral requisites. The garbage collection that you've oftentimes spoken about in the streets of Jerusalem and elsewhere, which can become a transcendent experience based on how you... You know, it's so transcendent that they forget to take it. <laughs> but I'm giving the extreme example how everything, even the mundane, can actually be very special when you have to consider how you put on the lights and how you work and maintain utilities and how you allow for the everyday activities of a state to function. In another state, in another political context, it's just a country. But here, the act activities of daily living can actually, because of the interactions, become something special. When, the, when I lived here for two years, and when the, uh, the UPS man came to pick up my mail in my apartment, in his brown suit and his little brown shorts, and before he came into my apartment, he kissed the mezuzah. I said to myself, Baruch Shechianu, maybe I finally, it's not just anyone, it's not UPS anymore. It's a person who's doing something for me, but he's doing it out of a certain sense of more than a job. There was even fellowship in that moment. That happens every day or can happen here. Oh, it's very nice. Which country do you live in? I, I'm paraphrasing something that you was, it's not descriptive as much as it is prescriptive. All right, I, I'll, let, I'll let it go as well. Yes, one second. I think uh, you've put your finger on the essential point of uh, not chosen or choosing or not chosen, but chosen for what? And I think in order to get away from some of the problematics, there's maybe a dual level where primary, secondary, secondary also holy, a moral life. But the first curse is for those who stray into idolatry. And everything that that meant and means to this very day in terms of human blood sacrifice, the end supposedly justifies the means, and that at a certain level, the people is chosen to struggle as our name, Yisrael, says, to struggle against idolatry in every generation. And when we fail at that, when we don't realize that primary calling, we punish ourselves. We, the, the fact that we have not realized that there is a struggle against primary evil which doesn't relate to uh, uh, dealings in business that may be a bit 
more moral or less moral, which are important and, and very important, but there is a primary injunction in the Torah. And uh, I've written on this and I've communicated with you, but enough said for now. Okay, yes, the final question. I think that what I want to say is in agreement with the main points that you're making. To me, what is essential, <clears throat> unique about the Jewish people is that God took us out of Egypt. He brought us through the desert to Mount Sinai, and he said, I've done this for you. Now, this is what you should do for me. What's unique about the Jewish people isn't whether we have virtues that other people have or don't have. It's not whether we have obligations that we have. What we tell ourselves and we tell every member of our family is that we were there when the Torah was offered and we said, na seva nishma. And that's why we've got the obligation because we said we accept the obligation. And that's what's unique about the Judaism. And at the time that this event occurred, there were no other nations that uh, had a breed with Hashem. Now, it can be argued either way, maybe now some other nations have a Brit with Hashem. I don't want to take a position on it. What I want to say is that from that time until this, I'm still responsible for having said, I'm going to do it. Yeah, okay. I, I, I have no deep objection to everything you're saying, all of you. Okay, I don't know. I may be living in a different neighborhood than many people live. I live in a very normal neighborhood, not so from. You people are very from. That's very nice. It's very nice. First of all, we don't know what idolatry means today. We don't know what it means to who around with other gods. Who are the other gods that are seducing us? So that'll be, what? Yeah, I knew you would say that. I don't think Mercedes-Benz is the greatest idolatry. I often said I want God to test me with Mercedes-Benz and see if I'm still ethical. <laughs> Instead of treating me in poverty and pain, let him make life more comfortable for me and let's see if I'm still gonna be a mensch. I, I, I would like that challenge. What I'm only trying to get for you today is that the most central doctrine of the Jewish religion, the notion of covenant and chosenness, is the most difficult, painful, complex idea that unless you some way swim through it and get a handle on it in some way, can you make sense of your own Judaism? It's not an easy task. I really wish I'd have a whole semester on that. Yes, a final question. My question, somebody asked about the Shoah, and you said that was hard. And the title, one of the points of this lecture was the idea of chosenness in the modern Judaism. And I'm, I wanna push you to say, after the Shoah, continuing to say that God has a covenant that we understand 
God operates in history is the fundamental challenge facing our people. And it's, I would argue, qualitatively different. And Levinas and Leibovitz are two examples of thinkers who argue that any reading of suffering caused by God in history after the Shoah is an abomination and an obscenity. And Levinas understands chosenness as we are responsible for the other, even when the other, and I think he might include God in that, is not responsible for us. But I'd like to hear you talk more to that. Sending us back to Deuteronomy, where it says there's a covenant, and if you disobey, then you know, you're punished because you, what could possibly justify the Shoah? So I, I'd like to hear you talk more about how chosenness can continue, to, can continue to operate in light of the Shoah. To feel that they're chosen and feel that to be a member of the Jewish people is to embrace a very unique destiny and to in some way impose on this people a destiny that they're not even aware of. Majority of Jews are not aware of anything. Go to Malcha and go to the mall and speak to people. Hi, who's a member of the chosen people? Have a booth, a chosen people booth. <laughs> what does it mean? Is it a sign of arrogance? Is it false pride? Is it excessive nationalism? Or it's covenantal transcendence? Different move. Who are we? The very meaning of what it means to be a Jew is dependent upon this question. Who do we want to be is the issue. Who do we want to be? Do we want to be part of a elect chosen people or not? We have to think about that. So I give you material to think about. Leo Strauss, it's a lot of good stuff. So feel good, know that you are a chosen one, and the Lord is gonna get you. <laughs> okay. You have been listening to David Hartman, President Emeritus and founder of Shalom Hartman Institute. Subscribe to this podcast to be notified of more lectures in this series. For information about the Hartman Institute and our courses in North America and Israel, go to hartman.org.il. The Hartman Institute podcast is produced by Tony Jason. Music by Kevin McLeod. I'm Alan Abbey. Thank you for listening, and we will see you again next time.